I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. This week, I want to thank Credit Karma for supporting the podcast. Credit Karma, apply with more confidence today. If you're ready to apply, head to creditkarma.com slash loan offers to see personalized offers. And thank you to Freshly for supporting Celebrity Memoir Book Club. Freshly has delicious, fresh, healthy meals ready to heat and enjoy in just three minutes. Stop stressing about dinner. Right now, Freshly is offering our listeners $125 off your first five orders when you go to Freshly.com slash worm. Amazing. And Ashley. Yes, Claire. If these people are our first time listeners, what should they expect? They should expect to learn. To learn what? Something new about their favorite and least favorite celebrities, as well as things that take their favorite celebrities down to least favorite and their least favorite up to most favorite every once and again. I have a question. If people are looking for objective facts, have they come to the right place? Absolutely not. There is no objectivity. So we're going to give you our opinions. We're going to give you what we read. We're going to give you what we think. Objectivity is subjective. Yes. And so we're going to give you a little reading between the lines. Yes, I think that they wouldn't put these words down on a page if they didn't want us to dig between them. And of course, if you don't like that, please feel free to just listen to a different podcast. And if you do like it, please leave us a five-star review and I'll be reading the names of our five-star reviewers at the end of the episode. And a quick shout out to our Chicago Worms. You guys sold out the early show. We are coming to Chicago May 14th. There are still tickets from the late show. And I just want to say... If you want to come alone, like a lot of people are coming alone. We're going out afterwards. So we're not doing a meet and greet, but we are just going to go to a bar and hang out with all of our wormy friends. And a lot of people will write to us quite often saying, I've moved to a new city. How do I meet new people? And we always say, do something that you like and you'll meet people who have that interest in common with you. So come to the show alone. There will be other people who are there alone and you'll all have worm vibes in common and you'll become friends. And of course, if you are looking to stay home, we have another perfect show for you. We are doing our Moment House digital live show, which is on the computer, 8 p.m. AEDT, which is Australian time. So all of our Australian warmies, this is your shot to get your friends together and watch it over a charcuterie board. If you want to tune in from work, anybody in the world can tune in. It is live. And if you don't want to tune in live, if 6 a.m. Eastern time 8 p.m. Australian Eastern Daylight Time is just not vibing with your schedule. For seven days, you can watch a live replay and you think, why would I do that? And it's because we discuss a new essay every single time. I'm so excited to hear you guys interact with us during the show. We're doing Lily Collins for both Chicago and Australia. So tune in. I'm so freaking excited to hear what Emily and Perry has to say. Yeah, I can't wait to hear Emily in her own. How do you say words in French? Mo. I can't wait to hear Emily Mo. (laughs) (laughs) That <laughs> didn't have the ring to it that I thought it would. Ashley. Yeah, Claire. Before we get going, if you were a celebrity and last week was a chapter of your memoir, what would it be called? Oh my God. Last week it would be called Bitches Let's March. I feel very passionate about Planned Parenthood and all the marches people do for them. I feel like I've always been like, yeah, of course we should support Planned Parenthood. It's an incredible resource. And then I went to Planned Parenthood this last week and I'm like, I think we have two treasures in this country and they are Planned Parenthood and Molly Shannon and we need to protect them both. I really am obsessed with Planned Parenthood now. I literally have spent months losing sleep over getting my IUD replaced because I'm like it's going to be just like a horrible time I'm going to be out of commission for a week it's just going to be the worst day of my life and it was like very fine can I say it sounds like you've been saying plant parenthood like a mother to a small ficus (laughs) 
<laughs> you guys, I do not support Planned Parenthood due to the fact that if you look over at my plants right now, they're not in great shape. But I do support Planned Parenthood. Had I had a little bit more Planned Parenthood in my life, I might not have planned to get a plant so soon. <laughs> Claire. Yes. If you were a celebrity and you were to describe last week as a chapter of your memoir, what would you call it? I would call it too old to function. Okay. Okay. So I've been trying to get back at the gym, working on my fitness. Like Fergie. Yes. Okay. And I've been doing it very mildly. Like I've just been trying to get to the gym at all and then I'll get there and sometimes I'll walk on the treadmill and sometimes I'll walk on an elliptical. Like you walk onto the elliptical and walk back (laughs) off or what? No, like I get on the elliptical and I go at a walking pace. (laughs) Okay. So it's just like a low impact walk. I feel like people are always like, just go for 10 minutes and see how you feel after 10 minutes. You probably won't want to leave. I leave. I'm like, try to make it for 30 minutes. I've been making it for 20. But anyway, this is all to say very like low impact exercising. Last night I slept on my neck so weird that it got a crick in it. And I think it's from all of this exercise. And I have been so put out by this neck crick that walking over here today, I couldn't breathe. I thought I had COVID because I couldn't remember how your head goes on your neck. And so I was like, I looked like a fish. I can't explain it, but I was like gulping for air, like walking down. Like, like I had it at these weird angles and I just, I kept trying to like re-jimmy it in. And I like would be aware of what it must look like to people looking at me, but I couldn't remember how necks go. And I was holding my neck up so high, my head up so high that my throat was too tight to breathe. And so I was gasping for air. (laughs) I was just like, Jesus Christ, because I walked for 20 minutes. I feel like if working out makes you lose all control and connection with your own body, it's done. I was like, I couldn't breathe. I can't explain it to you. I really was like. <gasps> <laughs> anyway, should we get to this week's memoirist? Yeah, I want to disclaim up top. This book swept me away. Oh, we are reading a fucking book this week. Truly capital B book. I was blown away if you are listening to this on the day this episode comes out you are also listening to it on the day this book comes out because we got advanced copies bitches hell yeah but i will say this is one of five books that i would recommend people go out and buy i am not just saying that because they sent us advanced copies (laughs) i am saying that because i loved it me and ashley kept voice noting each other being like did you get to this part i'm crying did you get to this part i'm crying it's so good i'm so excited so like buckle up bitches because we're going on a ride Trigger warning, life. (laughs) Today we are reading Hello, Molly by Molly Shannon of SNL fame and a lot of other things. Honestly, she's in quite a bit. When you look at her roster, you're just like, holy shit. Molly Shannon was born September 16th, 1964. She's currently 57 years old. And as we said, this book just came out today. Yeah. So at the time of writing, she was 56, I'd guess, 57. But this is a very contemporary story so molly shannon was born in shaker ohio and we're just gonna start at the beginning shaker of this- heights shaker heights ohio which i feel like i hear about all the time shaker heights comes up a lot if you live in america you guys know i feel very triggered by ohio so the fact that molly made me feel positively about it well she left <laughs> i know but she made me feel nostalgic for ohio a place i've been once So she opens with this story. When I was four, I looked out of the window of my family's two-story house in Cleveland, Ohio, and I saw a little girl on a tricycle. I was in the downstairs den, and the feeling was very peaceful. I remember looking at that girl and thinking, I really want to become friends with her. So I asked my mom, how do you do that? How can I go up to her? She said, all you have to do is go up and say, I'm Molly, and introduce yourself. I think you're going to have a lot of friends because you seem like the type of person who could do that. So that's like the opening scene. And I will say the next part catches you off guard when she was four years old her entire family went to a cousin's graduation party a couple hours away 
and on the way home got into an accident that ended up killing her mother, her sister, and her cousin. Her dad was at the wheel and he had been drinking the whole night. He claims that he had said to the mother, I'm too tired to drive. And she said, it's fine. I'll keep you awake. He says what happened was he had turned around to the back to ask the cousin what exit was hers. And in doing so, he sideswiped a car and then crashed into a pole. People also say he fell asleep. There's obviously accusations that he was just drunk driving or like drunk and fell asleep. But he was at the wheel. And when he collided with the pole, this was before they had breakaway poles, I guess. It completely destroyed his whole body. It killed the mother, sister, and cousin on impact. And it left Molly at four years old and her older sister, Mary, who was six. Yes. So Molly, her sister, Mary, and the father survived. So now you realize that that early memory was Molly's essentially only memory of her mother. I would say when I was reading this chapter, I was waiting for something to happen to the girl on the bicycle. Oh, yeah, that's that. No, (laughs) you wish. But I do think it sets up like who Molly Shannon is, which is someone who's deeply interested in people. She is like a popular girl. She's somebody who's beloved and like loves. She's very fearless. I think she was like a really interesting, unique person who had this horrible tragedy happen to her. And it like doubled down every quality she already had. And the way she paints the picture of losing her mom, her sister and her cousin was honestly very heartbreaking. She was four years old, so she did not understand death. She says, I really couldn't accept it. I didn't know what death was. I just wondered why did mommy and Katie leave without me? I thought that my mom loved me, but now she's gone with Katie. So maybe that was all fake. Maybe she didn't really love me. Maybe I'm bad. Oh, I really wish I could see them. That's how a kid of four's brain works. There was no way I could understand or accept that they were not coming back. My whole life changed in an instant. So after the accident, her dad is completely, all of his bones are broken. All of his teeth are ruined. He's in the hospital for a month or two, and then he gets out, and he gets better and learns to walk again at the aunt's house, his sister's house, the mother of Fran, the niece who died. They tried their best, but nobody was really equipped to like help children process tragedy. She says only one priest was ever nice to her about it or came up to her after the funeral and said, Molly, I know you lost your mother. That's very sad. That's very hard. You lost your sister, Katie. You lost your cousin. So sad. So hard for you. God bless you. I thought to myself, oh my God, I'm in love. I think I love Father Murray. He's handsome and he understands me in a deep way. Nobody else knew how to talk to kids. I imagined adults having conversations with each other saying, just don't talk about it. Don't bring that up. It'll make her too sad. I couldn't expect them to know how deep the ache felt. Father Murray understood and I loved him for that. And she says that she and her sister felt very let down by the teachers who like just didn't know how to help them. She writes about Mother's Day. Her sister's class was making Mother's Day cards and Mary told her teacher, I don't have a mother. What should I do? And the teacher said, oh, just go ahead and make a card anyway. That is not the right answer, but I get that like not every teacher is going to be well equipped to handle the situation she says there was a situation when she was four years old where she tripped and fell and hit her knee and then she just cried and cried and cried for hours and it was not about her knee it was about the fact that her life was different than all of her friends lives her life had changed forever she like didn't understand what was going on and there was no one in her life like her dad was recovering her aunt was mourning the cousin I mean there was just no one to help them in school, I misbehaved around female teachers out of fear that I'd disappoint them the way I must have disappointed my mom, and I must have disappointed her. I must be defective. Otherwise, why would she have left? All I could think was that I did something bad to make her leave. So I acted bad around teachers to keep from getting close to them. That way, I'd never get hurt again. I'll be bad at first. I'll leave you first. I could be in control, and they wouldn't surprise me by leaving. I would disappoint them first. 
She says, I was four years old. My mother was dead. My sister, Katie, was dead. My father had just gotten out of the hospital. My whole world had collapsed. And there I was trying to sing with the wheels on the bus. So after about a year of living with her aunt and uncle, they had to get out of there. I think there must have been a lot of tension. I mean, she says quite specifically, Aunt Bernie had never told my uncle John what my mom had said about the rough ride home because if she had... He'd have asked why she let their daughter get in the car and get a ride home with my dad driving. The tension was always in the air. So they moved to their own house. This is when they moved to Shaker Heights. And they just try their best. (laughs) It was just a single dad who was not entirely fully mobile on his own, Mm -hmm. raising two girls, living with the guilt of surviving and he was an alcoholic and so she talks about like living with him and how much she adored her father and how much everybody loved her father she said he was so silly and everybody thought she was so funny she made this new friend named Anne that she met when she moved to Shaker Heights who was two years younger than Molly and everyone just kind of accepted as the new Katie Katie was the sister who had passed away the baby sister her and Anne were real partners in crime type friends they would really just get into trouble and they had all these crazy games they did a lot of make-believe they would make up these characters and she started developing this really interesting outlook on life. Her and Anne would just like go to new places and look around because no one was really watching over either of them. And she says, if you ever feel stuck, just go to a completely different atmosphere with different kinds of people and see how stimulating it is. There's nothing better. And it's like, wow, she really does take a lot of useful things away from these very stressful situations, like being an unattended to five-year-old. She also develops a defense mechanism of just being tough. She says a lot that she never felt taken care of. She wasn't taken care of. Her dad was not really equipped to handle the kids. He was an alcoholic. He had two little daughters that he didn't know what to do with. It seems like he could barely make ends meet. And she was very popular and she just like learned how to suppress all of her emotions and act silly. She acted out. I was elected president of my class two years in a row. My mother was right about my ability to make friends. I was popular. But mostly it was just her and Anne being silly all the time. She tells a story about how when she was little in second grade, they would play family during recess almost every day near the vestibule. They would each divide into families and pick kids for their family. And she said, it was the perfect fantasy. I was the mother. I wanted to be the best mother. Then in fifth grade, this angry boy named Billy Fox passed me a note that said, haha, you don't have a mother. I had hardly ever cried about my mom, but I broke down in front of my classmates. I just lost it. It ripped me out of my fantasy. I remember thinking, I do have a mother. Yes, I do. And she loves me. Okay, she's not here and she can't pick me up from school like all your mothers because she's in heaven. But I have a mom. I wanted to get him to understand. But really, I was thinking, oh, no, he's probably right. She is dead. It was a very profound and dramatic moment. The first time anybody punctured my fantasy. And she says, for the most part, the aftermath of that moment, she was just embarrassed by it because it made her feel vulnerable and she didn't know how to process that vulnerability so then she really gets into her dad she says he was like the super charismatic stylish guy everybody loved him and all the kids loved him because he was super silly he was always encouraging them to be naughty going to the mall acting ridiculous making them laugh he was very suave and well-dressed yeah but he was also extremely inconsistent and he would just turn on a dime she said he was indignant for a moment and then he would just go into a rage Anne and Mary and I would just look at each other and say, oh, no, there he goes. We knew we couldn't control him. She gives this example of the time they were back to school shopping and things said they were on sale and turned out they weren't on sale. And so he freaks out. He slid all the hangers and clothes off the rack and down onto the floor. This is false advertising. He moved onto the next rack and did the same thing. And this is false advertising. He shoved both the racks over and shouted, come on, girls, let's go. As we were leaving without buying any clothes, he yelled at the manager and you're fat, you're fat, you're fat. We were all shocked and just whispered, oh, no, which is what we were all thinking. As the door was shutting, my dad hissed at the clerk and fix your teeth. 
He would always hurl one last insult and it was always about appearance. She says, so I either adored my dad or was frustrated. And at the end of my rope, there was a lot of back and forth. I never knew which dad I would get. The one who meets my needs or the one who couldn't. I'd be frustrated by him. I'd be angry with him. And then he would understand me and we'd be so simpatico and so in sync and had so much fun till along came another moment of total disconnect. And I felt so alone and abandoned. But she really adores her dad, though. She says he was very much responsible for making me who I am. He gave me a lot of confidence. He was like the mama rose to my gypsy rose. He really believed in me, understood me and gave me great advice. Like if you don't have a good time at a party, it's your own fault. You need to go over and introduce yourself to the person who doesn't have anyone to talk to. You need to extend yourself and go ask them questions. Take an interest. But then he could flip. Yeah. So one of his big problems is that he is extremely clingy and fearful of abandonment. And so when Molly wants to hang out with her friends, she has to butter him up. Like if she wants to go spend a day with Anne, she and Anne would have to like hang out with the dad first and kind of make him feel included and then be like, all right, we're going to go play now. Like it was a dance. Like they couldn't just go be kids ever. One time she went out with a friend named Alice and she called her dad to be like, I'm out with my friend. And then she didn't call again to check in and she came back at a normal time. But he was like, you abandoned me for the entire day. You're so monumentally selfish. She ran to her room and cried. And then they had this like very bizarre reconciliation. He goes, Molly, I'm sorry. I worship you. I'm so sorry. Don't you know that I worship the ground you walk on? I replied tearfully. I love you. I love you. Don't you know how much I love you? I love you. Of course I was thinking about you. God, I'm so sorry. I'm always causing you so much pain. I'm so sorry. I make your life terrible. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, he said. And he got down on his knees. Forgive me. She says that in these moments when they would fight, she experienced what felt like a blackout. We'd be in the den alone. He'd be screaming. The whole world would just contract to just us with me crying, pleading, spinning in darkness, trying to respond to some irrational accusation, trying to get him to understand me, but unable to get through. During these fights with my heart pounding, I could feel my brain dropping down like an elevator. I was locked inside and I couldn't get away. The arguing would pummel me into a black depression. She talks about just like how much drama there always was at her house. And she says a lot of my childhood was spent listening to my dad talking about how he had lost a wife, not how we had lost our mom, how he had lost his wife. But then there are these completely opposite moments where he just enables her to really like develop into her creativity to never second guess like a crazy whim that she has. She said, I could just be completely myself like Pippi Longstocking. I wore whatever I wanted to wear, red and blue tights in the summertime and shorts with patent leather party shoes and bobby socks my dad let me be myself it gave me so much freedom later as a performer i mean she also does sound like she was like such a little weirdo she goes another time i went to a basketball practice in a pantsuit it was a plaid pantsuit with a matching vest and i brought it to school in a brown grocery bag and i read that and i was like that's the craziest thing i've ever heard in my life what are you doing playing basketball in a brown plaid pantsuit in like third grade it's the craziest thing i've ever heard of in my life until we get to the next chapter which is called hopping the plane so her dad will just encourage these whims they go on and they'd heard of this thing called hopping a plane it was obviously before 9-11 so yeah. there was no security <laughs> at airports and you could just walk up to the gates at planes and they decided they were just going to get on a plane and see if they could get somewhere with no ticket. And the dad was like, yeah, sure. Go try it. So she and Anne take the train from Shaker Heights to the Cleveland airport by themselves. Um, she was 13 and Anne was 11, 13 and 11. Oh my God. So they put on their ballet outfit. So they, they look all innocent and they go to the airport. There's a flight to New York and they just get on it. And they tell the woman checking the tickets that their sister's on the flight. So they, can they just go say goodbye? So they sneak onto the flight and they just find empty seats and sit. 
the plane starts moving and they're like, holy shit, we did it. And then the woman is serving drinks up and down the aisle, sees them and ignores the situation entirely. And then when they get off the plane, they call the dad to be like, guess where we are? We're in New York. And at first he's like kind of proud of them because he had egged them on to do it. But he's like, I'm not paying for you to come back. So figure it out. Finally, after trying as hard as they can to hop back on another flight, they call him desperately. They're like, please, if we pay you back, will you pay for us to come home? They went to Rockefeller Center from LaGuardia. I don't even know how to do that. (laughs) That's so true. In New York, you notoriously cannot get from an airport to anywhere. (laughs) A few years ago, someone asked me what lesson I learned from hopping the plane. And I said the lesson I learned is that I could get what I want with a break the rules. Everything is an adventure. People are mostly good mentality. The world seemed open to me. And it was the greatest day ever. I do think that that is the lesson and also it's hysterical i mean i was reading it like jaw on the floor i was like what are these children doing alone on a plane in new york City? like that's crazy i feel like someone wanted her to be like the lesson i learned is you have to be more responsible and her lesson was just like no it all worked out things are fine (laughs) i mean i do think like one of the themes of this book is that because so early her whole family like experienced the worst there was nothing left to be afraid of for the rest of their lives like none of them seem to have any fear yeah it does seem kind of like the worst possible thing that anyone could fathom happened to me when I was four years old so like might as well go balls to the wall because what's the worst that could happen I mean and she talks a lot about what it was like growing up in the suburbs in the 70s and 80s and just like everybody in her town was an alcoholic her dad was an alcoholic and even though he had been drinking the night of the accident he did not stop drinking again or he didn't even try to get sober for years so he would just like meet up with his friends and it wasn't all the time but sometimes he would just go on these like multi-day binges he got into another drunk driving accident when she was in high school she and her sister were both at sleepovers and he got a DUI and was in jail for the night Then he got into another car accident where he had been drinking. When I walked in, I went up to his bed. He looked sad. I cried a little. I was worried. I had a lump in my throat. He was wearing a big bandage on his chin. Some of his teeth had been knocked out and his chin had been cut deeply. It was really scary and I felt bad for him. How could this happen again? At this point, he does go to AA and he spends the rest of his life trying to be sober. He like will be sober for a few months at a time and then fall off the wagon and have a horrible binge. But Like, it does feel like for the rest of his life, he knows that this is something that he needs to constantly be thinking about. I don't think it seems like he wanted to ever be sober for life. It seems like he, like, understood that he had to be in control. Mm -hmm. And so he would have long bouts of sobriety and then be like, well, there's a party. Yeah. (laughs) I do think it was this weird thing where, like, everybody in town would drink like that. She tells a story about every couple months, all the parents would come to their house and party downstairs. And at like 7 a.m. I mean, it wasn't until a few years ago that there was any like widely known concept of alcohol as a disease. Yeah, but I mean, still, I feel like it's crazy to have like children in elementary school and be partying at a friend's house till 7 a.m. Their friends would be like, hey, is my mom still there? And they'd be like, yeah. And then she'd be like, well, do you want to come over here and we'll have breakfast? (laughs) Like that is a very different idea of parenthood than I'd say we have today. Yeah. (laughs) This whole book, it's worth reading because just like every page has a different like harrowing story they have one about this game they would play at mass on sundays one time during mass to make mary laugh i imitated one of those perfect moms and pretended mary was my little daughter i lovingly stroked mary's shoulder length brown hair then i put her hair behind her ear and said oh darling you look so pretty you should wear your hair like that all the time behind your ears pretending to be her doting mother mary was cracking up she thought it was so funny then playing along she started doing it to me oh honey bun your hair looks so nice pull your hair back like that She would do it to me and I would do it to her and we would pretend to be each other's mothers. It was so relaxing and silly and it felt good. (laughs) And it ends when she just says at the end of the day, like as hard as a time as their dad had, 
when I would say, Daddy, I love you, he would mouth back, no, I, point to himself, love you, point to me. And he would get all choked up. And if something was really touching to him, he would always be fighting back tears. He had a very big heart. And when he would lose his temper, he always felt remorse. She also talks about how he was very non-judgmental and she could always talk to him and he would be open to the conversation. She says, my friends never felt judged by him. They would open up to him in a way that they didn't with their own parents because he was so easygoing and open-minded and had an alternative view of things. You could tell him anything without feeling judged. He was genuinely interested in what you had to say and he would always ask them questions about themselves. That is like rare in an adult I think especially in that day and age so he really had these things that drew people in and then obviously he had these colossal flaws one of the things though is he had always wanted to be an actor Mm -hmm. and he like loved like Judy Garland and like Elizabeth Taylor and all those strong women and she says her dad is a big part of why she's such a performer he allowed it but then she talks about like how he would make them play the telephone game, which is when you would have to pretend to answer a fake phone call. He showed us how to do it and make it look real. And then they would take their turns. Freeze, stop, he'd say. Start over. That seemed fake. It had to be 100% real, no acting. It was the best exercise in how I first developed my skills. It was the Jim Shannon School of Real Acting. Oh my God, this is another crazy story. She says on Christmas and his birthday, he didn't want gifts. He wanted cash. So her and her sister really compete to see how much cash they could give their own dad. Yeah, he was not a traditional parent in the way that like, you know, you go over to a friend's house and you're like, oh, the family is going to take me out to dinner and then they just treat. And then when that kid comes out to dinner with your family, your parents pay. It's very standard. If a kid pulled out money and be like, here, let me pay for my part of dinner. He'd be like, okay. Yeah, and they were always so embarrassed that they would give him their babysitting money before dinner and be like, if they offer, say no, we'll pay for their part. He was a single dad, so they were eating a lot of TV dinners. It's too bad they didn't have Freshly. You guys, Freshly sends pre-cooked meals that are not frozen. They are so delicious, not highly processed. They're designed by nutritionists, cooked by chefs, and then delivered fresh every single week. And they're ready to eat in three minutes. And they add new ones every single week. There's always something exciting to pick. You don't have to worry about grocery shopping. You don't have to worry about dishes. It's so nice to have these meals that are so well-rounded delivered to your house every single week. Plus, they have everything for every dietary preference, allergy, family size, the whole enchilada, maybe even enchiladas. These meals are so good. Me and Claire have tried a bunch of them and... Let me tell you, one of the things that I love most about them is that they're so well-rounded. Like every single meal has protein and vegetables. And me and Claire are notoriously non-cookers. Like neither of us know how to cook pretty much anything. I know we try a lot, but it never really works out. And we used to meet every single week to get our weekly salad. And that was the majority of our, our vegetable intake. So if you notice anything different about us, it might be the new Freshly Meals. And us having just a a healthy diet right now. Stop stressing about dinner right now. Freshly is offering our listeners $125 off your first five orders when you go to Freshly.com slash worm. That's $125 off at Freshly.com slash worm. Once you have your meal prep in order, it's time to work on your finances. Paying down debt can be so stressful, especially when you need to keep track of multiple monthly payment dates. If you're tired of keeping track of all those due dates, if your calendar is overwhelmed, try consolidating with a personal loan. That way you only have one due date a month and Credit Karma is the perfect tool to help you find the best option. Credit Karma uses your credit data to find loan offers that are personalized to you so that you can have a better idea of what loan you can 
get approved for. They'll even show you your chances of approval using all of your financial data so you can choose between the loans that you are most likely to get approved for and apply with confidence. Comparing loans with Credit Karma is completely free. It won't affect your credit score. It's just an incredible way to take a look at your finances and get more control of them. Use Credit Karma to apply with confidence today. If you're ready to apply, head to creditkarma.com slash loan offers to see personalized offers. Go to creditkarma.com slash loan offers to find the loan for you. That's creditkarma.com slash loan offers. Anyway, I'm not sure if Molly Shannon had a great handle on her finances because she did get into stealing. They start stealing just to have fun one time and they figure out how easy it is. And I do think it comes from their dad always like pushing them to be naughty, seeing what they can get away with. And because money was so tight. Money was so tight. And also she mentions in this book that when she would ask her dad for certain things, he would say yes, but then it would come back to bite you later. Like he would buy you something and then be like, well, remember when I bought you that thing? Now you owe me something else. And then also one of the first things she shoplifts is a bra and I think that that was just an embarrassing thing to say like, hey, dad, I need my first bra. So she gets good at shoplifting. And then one time her and her friend Anna are out shoplifting and they get caught and they're thrown in juvie. And then as a result, they have to end up going to Shoplifters Anonymous, which we thought was hysterical. We loved it. As long as we could be together, it was all great. Shoplifters Anonymous was even funner than shoplifting. I remember thinking it was so funny going to meeting and sharing with the other bad girls. It's really interesting because she truly had no consequences. She really was just pushing boundaries. And I do think a lot of consequences until they're real. Like if she had actually been in juvie, that's a consequence. But because she was just assigned to this shoplifters anonymous, you can just decide if that's a consequence or if it's like a fun way to spend an afternoon with your friend. Yeah, she learned to make the best out of every situation. She was always being silly. So when she's in high school, she starts getting involved with like more performing arts things. And I guess Shaker Heights has like a great performing arts program. And she goes out one time and she loves it. She says, all the kids were just so warm. We would all braid each other's hair. We would have massage chains. There was all this touching. That's really what drew me into showbiz. Everyone's sitting on the floor in a group, giving massages as the girls brushed and braided and played with each other's hair. I just loved the way everyone was so affectionate. The warmth that I was missing from a mother, I got from all of these theater kids and their affection. She meets her first boyfriend in the theater. His name is George Cheeks. And he does end up being gay, but they stay friends forever. Yeah, she has so many childhood friends that are her friends to this day. It's unbelievable. So in high school, she decides she wants to become an actress and she applies to NYU. She kind of has no guidance or help in getting there. She says she can't even ask her dad for the money for the test to get in. And she's like, I would have paid him cash, but in order to get the check. But I knew he would have lorded that over me forever. And he would have been like, why are you even spending money on this? And she says he did not care about school. He did not care about grades. Oftentimes when she got stressed out studying, he would be like, why are you so stressed? Just figure out a way to cheat. Sometimes when she was overwhelmed, they would go on these things called mystery trips where they would just drive to the airport and pick a flight and just go on a vacation for a week. But she did end up getting into NYU, the Tisch School of the Arts for the theater program, because she's always just been an incredible actress. I feel like she's always been able to be absolutely free and uninhibited on the stage. And so she delivers this monologue, even though she had absolutely no training. My audition was for the head of the NYU drama department, Evangeline Morphos. I performed this dark, intense monologue from Agnes of God, where I had to scream, mommy, mommy, don't burn me. The button had fallen off my corduroys and I was holding them up with a safety pin, which popped open in the middle of my monologue and stuck me in the stomach. The pain added to the intensity. I do think that she has like an incredible ability to like bring a warmth and humanity to like literally every character, everything I've ever seen her in, in my entire life. She like stands out as like, brilliant I mean she's just so deeply committed and I do think that it's like that fearlessness and we'll see that later with her physicality like 
there's nothing in her that stops her from going all out ever. She does everything to a hundred. Yeah. Like she doesn't have an emergency break in her brain. So fall of 1984, she moves to NYU. NYC. And she moves to NYC to go to NYU. They're actually in the same town. No. uh, (laughs) That's so funny. They have very similar initials. She says her dad drove her up with Mary. Then out of nowhere, somebody started shooting at their car. No. What happened is out of nowhere, someone came up and hit someone in the head with a bat. And then a cop came up with a gun and pointed the gun at their car. My dad screamed, duck. A few minutes later, all of us shaking. My dad said, goodbye, Molly. Have a wonderful time at NYU. And when she says after she left, my dad was devastated. When Mary left for college, he'd had a hard time, but he still had me at home. He'd relied on me even more. Now he was all alone. So her dad was pretty devastated and she was feeling very othered at school, but having a great time. Yeah, she loved it. She said, I can do whatever I want. I can be friends with whoever want I want. I'm going to be friends with the freaks and the geeks. and I don't have to fit into any clique and I'm free. And I like that witch and I'm going to be friends with that witch. <laughs> that was about her roommate who I guess people thought was a witch. <laughs> God, now the witch would have been the coolest girl on the floor. Yeah. And she says that she had to work the entire time, which made it very hard for her to take advantage of the acting programs at NYU. Yeah. A lot of it is like campus productions and she didn't really have time to audition, to participate. She had to work. She worked at school and then she also worked at some restaurants around town. She had a couple different restaurant jobs. She said at one of them, this old Irish guy came up to her and said, I'm going to be your manager. And then they like went out to dinner and he held her hand and she was like, I could do this. That's not so bad. And then one time she went to his apartment and there was all these Irish girls living with him who wanted to be working actresses. But in the meantime, I found out they were giving him blowjobs. And she's like, okay, I don't know if that's worth it. (laughs) She took her first real drama class where you had to like get into your emotions. I've always heard of this about these drama classes that really like are essentially cult based therapy exercises there is this like irony in actors where like someone has been through something terrible and they're just like oh my god I'm so jealous of how good you're gonna be at acting (laughs) that's so crazy and she has that here where she like describes her childhood and her teacher is like oh it's gonna be so great you have so much to pull from it's sad you've been through something horrible but instead they're like oh what a treat how wonderful that your life has been traumatic as hell yeah terry the acting coach says oh my darling oh my sweet girl if you can access that and i can see that you can it's going to be great you have so much to pull from after class my fellow drama students came up and hugged me they were very supportive and loving so then we get to this class of like french clowning Which, can I tell you, I've learned a little bit about... Italian clowning. Whatever. (laughs) (laughs) All these clowns. Well, French clowning is like miming, so this is extremely different. Okay. And for the the good of the art form, please do not (laughs) mix them up. So I have, in the last couple of years, met a handful of people who've actually, like, gone to clown school or participated in clowning of some kind. I hooked up with a guy who was in the middle of clown school one time. That's so embarrassing. I can't believe you just said that you fucked a clown. It was like a single clown class exercise and he was extremely hot. Clowning is crazy. Yeah, they take it dead seriously. Nobody's ever been less funny about something. Like the juggling is like a practice. It's not like the core of clowning. And it makes you wonder like where is real clowning happening? Like what is this skill set for? Cirque du Soleil. I mean, Steve-O went to clown school on a scholarship. Even though he was quite rich. We should be madder about him stealing that scholarship from a less privileged clown. Anyway, so they do Italian clowning and it's called Arlecchino. It's like, I don't know, whatever. So so she has her Arlecchino final 
And everyone is like very prepared for this clown performance. Everyone's like practicing their shtick. And she decides she's just going to go in there and like be the Arlecchino. All she has is like a stuffed dick that she sewed together. And she just goes in that room and gives it her all. She just does this insane, physical, silly performance where she falls into a garbage can and pulls herself out and like makes fun of the teacher. But as a character, so you're allowed to make fun of the teacher. And she gets like a standing ovation. The crowd like carried her out on their shoulders. No one had ever seen anyone Arlecchino like that before. I learned I could really make people laugh. I learned to trust myself that somewhere deep in my gut, I knew not to be over rehearsed, but just let it rip. Know the basic beats, but then let yourself be free within those parameters, which is what I ended up doing years later on SNL. Then we get into another crazy story. At NYU, she has this scene partner named Gina who asks her if they want to go practice their scene at some hotel in Midtown. And she was like, I don't really think that we should go to Midtown. And she's like, no, no, dudes will buy us drinks in Midtown. So they go there and it turns out Gina's a prostitute who like forces Molly into this situation where they're like in a room with a sultan while Gina (laughs) fucks this guy and then they both get $600 and Gina's all pissed that they got the same amount of money. Yeah, but she completely like bullied Molly into doing it and being like, please just come up, like just hang out. And Molly keeps saying, no, no, no. And then she's like, well, if you don't come with me, he could kill me. She's like, fine. And then she's like so mad she got duped into doing this. And then the next week her friend calls her up and she's like, you'll never believe what my scene partner just tried to make me do. And she's like, I believe you. (laughs) Don't worry. I'll believe it. That is crazy. You can't do that to other people. I feel like if you want to be a sex worker that is like very fine. You just have to be safe about it and also not force someone into sex partnering with you. Yeah, no, she like gaslit people into being (laughs) her pimp. You can't do that. So at NYU, she finally does get involved in some of the extracurriculars. And this is where she comes up with the character of Mary Catherine Gallagher. Ever heard of her? If you haven't, she's very famous for a a movie called Superstar, and she was a very famous character on SNL. In her last year, I tried out for this on-campus comedy review review show called... (laughs) Okay. Okay, you go then. In my last year, I tried out for this on-campus comedy review show called The Follies, where students would make fun of all the teachers. We did the show in a black box theater at midnight, and there were great writers working on it. And she mentioned some writers who I, quite frankly, haven't heard of, but one of the other actors who was cast in it is named Adam Sandler. She said he was, like, really famous on campus at NYU because he would just do stand-up in the middle of, like, halls. Which, yeah. as a, that sounds awful, but I guess he was very funny, and she said... Everyone loved him. He was probably working harder than anyone in that entire drama school. Most people were just studying acting, but Adam was so ambitious and focused and on stage all the time when he was really still a kid. You could see at a very young age that he was a standout. He was doing stand-up at clubs around town while in school. In The Follies, she ends up creating this character called Mary Catherine Gallagher on a whim. So they're working this out. They're creating the characters that they're going to do. And this character ends up becoming such a hit that they give her a spinoff show. And she ends up becoming famous on campus, too, in her own right, because everyone loved this Mary Catherine Gallagher show. She goes out to L.A. for like one summer before senior year, and she doesn't get anything because she has to work the whole time just to support herself. But she makes the note of the fact that she's staying in this USC dorm. And there's all these other actors from the drama program hanging by the pool. And all they ever did was party and hang out. And she was so jealous of them wanted to be able to just like party with them all the time but was mad that she had to work she went out with them one time and got really bored and was like over it she says they partied all summer long all the time i partied with them once and thought i'm never doing this again i felt so dehydrated the next day i wasn't willing to waste that kind of time none of those people ended up making it so if you're trying to make it at anything and you're jealous of all the people farting around don't be jealous because they're farting around 
Anyway, so she has her time in L.A. She ends up getting an agent who it turns out is another one, one of those. He does a couple of sleazy things at one point. He asks her to read a scene with him where it is like a little bit slutty, but he's like unbuttoning her shirt. And she's like, no, but I was committing to the bit. I was trying to be a serious actress. I was trying to take risks. So I was like totally cool with it. And then all of a sudden I realized it was creepy and I was like, okay, no, never mind. Then when she is back in New York, he ends up coming to New York with one of his clients, Gary Coleman, from Different Strokes. Yeah, and this is in 1987. So it's like the height of Different Strokes success. And Gary is like, do you want to come upstairs and see my room? And she's like, oh, my God, I'm going to see a very fancy hotel room. And he puts the moves on her. But he doesn't, like, try to kiss her. He leaps from the bed onto her, attacking her with kisses, trying to put his hands in her shirt. And, like, she kept saying no. She says she keeps flinging him across the room. He probably only weighed 50 pounds. It wasn't very hard. But he'd bounced right back from the bed and wrapped himself around me again. Bed jumping was clearly a technique for him. Whoa, I said, hey, come on, come on. Literally, she's throwing him off and he's jumping on the bed and onto her. Finally, she starts to walk away and he trained strategies. He crawled back over, grabbing my ankle, wrapped his whole upper body around my calf, and then I was dragging him across the floor. As I walked, he held on tight. No, Gary, I shouted. This time I had to shake him off my leg hard. Then I ran across the room and locked myself in the bathroom out of breath. He followed, got down on the floor, stuck his hand under the door, waved his fingers and said, I can see you, silly Billy. I mean, it's not funny. This is full on assault. But he just physically wasn't, he couldn't overpower her. She ends up getting out of the room. She tells the agent, your client is wild. So just to clarify, she has told this story very publicly while Gary Coleman was alive, which is why I think she like has guilt about sharing this. I don't know that she has guilt, but maybe she has a good copy editor who's like, by the way, people are going to say you're lying. So she says, I shared this whole story on Conan in the late 90s while Gary was still very much alive. He never contracted or contradicted me. He knew what had happened. I mean, I'm sure that that happened a lot. I mean, that would be crazy to make up. That would be crazy to make up. But I'm saying I'm sure that that happened often. So she decides to give New York a year after NYU. And then she was like, you know what? This isn't working. So she and Eugene Pack move out to L.A. Her and Eugene are doing all this temping. They're just bopping around, working at agencies, working at restaurants. And she, in doing that, meets a lot of famous people just kind of in passing, not necessarily working with them, but she's at the desks of agents. And she sees like Goldie Hawn come in nervous. She sees all these hugely famous people feeling insecure and she has a realization I've seen people who are superstar movie stars who still feel like they are only as good as their last movie and are full of fear and insecurity and I think wait a minute you are scared well in that case I better enjoy where I am because if you're scared then we're all fucked so instead of being like okay if you're scared this industry is fucked she's like oh I just don't want to feel that way so I'm just gonna be confident here as like a temp and I'm gonna be confident later when I have success and that just is what it is I just want to have fun the whole way I think that's really beautiful. So she's out in LA. They want to be actors. They're trying to figure out how to get repped. And then they come up with this thing that they call the Mamet scam. David Mamet, by the way, is like a very famous playwright. And the father to Georgia Mamet. Yes. And Mm. the father to Georgia. What did you say? Georgia. (laughs) How do you say it? I knew it before you fucked it. Like I knew it five minutes ago and then you like took it out of my brain forever. Georgia. Georgia. I'm pretty sure that's what I said. <laughs> <laughs> no, I knew it. And now I do, now I have unknown it. You unlearned it in my head. So he like famously lives in Vermont and New York and doesn't like to go to L.A. at all. So what they started doing is calling up for each other on behalf of David Mamet. And they would call all these talent agencies. They would call until they each got five meetings a week. And they'd say, hi, I'm David's assistant. I have this incredible up and coming actor, Eugene. You need to meet with him. 
And because nobody knew David Mamet, really, they were so honored that he had thought of them, but they couldn't like double check it. And they had to come back for everything. If they were like, great, let's get lunch. What's your phone number? She'd be like, we're about to move offices. I'll call you and Marcel in our new office. Or like, this is what the telephone game taught her. So she would just call them and they would each get each other new meetings. And they got meetings with like every agent in town, except for one single agent who was the agent for the Brat Pack at the time, mm-hmm. brought her in and goes, I just wanted to see what a liar looks like in real life. And she's like, we got so busted. <laughs> I mean, she says she got auditions from this scam. And obviously, it's not where, like, the main part of her career came from. But I do feel like it was a way to fill the time and a way to feel like you were doing something for your career. Like, I think that trying to make it in acting feels so stressful because so much is out of your hands. And I think that this scam, whether or not it got them anything, was, like, a really incredible way for them to feel in control of something. And I think she did a lot of, like, the grit work at this time of, like, preparing herself and, like, deciding this is what she wanted to do forever. I was temping. I was broke. And I just thought, this is so hard. I went for a walk and cried, talking to God. It's taking forever. I'm still really struggling. It's just not fair. But during that walk, suddenly I had an epiphany. I thought, at least I'm out here doing what I love, pursuing what I love, trying. So many people I'd gone to college with had given up on their dreams. And a lot of people from my high school had moved back to Ohio after college and weren't really pursuing what they wanted. I thought to myself, at least I'm in LA doing what I want. That alone is a very meaningful life. That's actually a good, brave thing. You're doing more than most people will ever do. I don't care if I keep trying till I'm 60. I'm going to try till I'm a grandmother. I'm going to enjoy the process. Yes, it's hard, but at least I'm out here doing what I want. That's a very good thing that most people aren't even brave enough to do. It's really beautiful and true. So then she gets a job at a restaurant called Cravings on Sunset Boulevard, and she has a great time there. Honestly, this is like a very fun restaurant job for her. She loves the people she works with. She loves it all. She loves observing the famous people that come in for lunch. She says Julia Roberts ordered just sausage, and she says, interesting, just sausage. Superstars eat sausage. (laughs) Good to know. So her and her friend Rob decide to put on their own play like she's not getting booked for anything she's very frustrated so they come up with this character show someone named Stephen Levy actually comes out and sees her and is like wow you're amazing in that I want to sign you so she goes to his office and she's like why is the furniture so small here why is everything so tiny it turns out he is a children's agent who's trying to break into the adult agenting game but he does have another very promising client named Brad Garrett who later becomes extremely famous from being Ray Romano's brother. I love him. Me too. He's so tall. He has such a funny voice. Yeah. (laughs) She gets written up and reviewed in this little play that her and her friend put on. So they decide to do a second one. And her friend Rob Muir. Is that how you say that? M-U-I-R? Sure. Muir? Muir? I don't know him. It sounds like somebody might know him. She kind of acts like he goes on to a big career. But anyway, they put on this second play and he has the foresight to be like, you're the genius here. I'm going to direct you. We're going to make the whole thing you. So she's putting all this work in. She has like a box of phone numbers of people that she calls constantly, like 500 people that she'll call to be like, will you come to my show? Will you come to my show? And she does it all the time to keep filling this theater. It does get some attention, but it's not massive. She says she calls 500 people to get 200 people to the show which is a ton of people but she's like I invited homeless people everybody should be allowed to come and then she would also like at her waitressing job take everybody's names and number like call them back up later and be like hey I was your waitress you said you would come to my show Mm -hmm. like she like hustled she paid for the band herself obviously she was paying for everything herself nobody was putting this up and it does eventually get her a request from SNL to submit a tape or Steven her agent is like I'm gonna get a tape of this show to SNL yes so she puts her favorite characters on tape and they get it to SNL and then she is told that SNL has passed on her 
and she takes it as quite a rejection. Now she realizes that there's no way Lauren ever saw that tape. She also says that when Stephen told me who they had picked to audition for Lauren, I just thought, oh, whatever. I guess her tape was better. Who do you think it was? Julia Louis-Dreyfus? Maybe. I like didn't do any Googling, but I was like, if I was a young, hungry, poor performer and the billionaire's daughter got the audition, I'd be fucking pissed. Yeah. So we should look that up. But then she says, then I thought, you know what? I'm just going to work really hard on my show, develop an arsenal of characters so that when SNL comes back around again, I'm going to be locked and loaded and ready. So she keeps on developing these characters. She keeps working hard. She really like creates this Mary Catherine Gallagher character. Like she has notes on notes of like, what is Mary Catherine Gallagher? Who is she? Well, she'll perform the show constantly. And then afterwards she walks around and says she like mentally will go through every single thing that happened in the show. What got laughs, think about it and then write down what worked and what didn't as she honed it. Mm -hmm. She also says, I decided I didn't want to focus too much on auditioning because they weren't really getting what I did. I wanted to focus on writing and creating original characters. And because it was so hard for me to get cast in the best friend roles, I felt so much urgency when it came to creating original material to put in my show. I figured that if you are a woman who knows how to write, that is better because then you aren't just waiting to fit into something that somebody else wrote that might not even be right for you. Better to just do your own material. And that exactly is what Mindy Killing says. And I do think that's like the best advice anyone can get. And she says, the struggle forced me to create my own work. It felt very empowering to stop relying so much on auditions. If I had gotten one of those jobs as the best friend on a multicam sitcom, I never would have pushed myself to create my own work and develop my stage shows. It ended up being positive, this struggle, never having an easy time. And she says she got little things here and there, but it was nothing that was going to pay the bills, really. She said even a casting director called her and said, Molly, you really need a break. You've been around town for a while. It was rough to hear, but I thought she's right. So she quits her restaurant job. Yeah. After four years at Cravings, she decides that she needs to just like jump out of the nest. So she's like 29, 30 at this point. Mm -hmm. She has been working really hard at it for quite some time and when you think about somebody with this much talent who like goes on to be this big of a success the fact that she spent four years at NYU and then eight years in LA just like trying and nobody could see that in her it is like damn sometimes they do just fuck up it makes you wonder if we're geniuses too can I tell you reading this book hearing about having all the multiple managers that like tried to exploit her and hit on her and I was like damn I've been around for eight years too and nobody's even tried to lie to me I can't believe nobody will even fake manage me to try to just get sex. It's it hurts to think about. Well, they're not good actors and they couldn't (laughs) pretend. Okay, so she keeps on auditioning. She's running around town. She quits her job and she's like, I'm going to give myself some time Mm -hmm. to like just go full force, do my show, just audition. And I have to say things still are going bad. She goes, I still wasn't getting things. She has meetings with all of the big agencies. They all reject her. And she is not taking it lightly. She says, I wish I could be breezy and casual with auditions like her and not let all the endless rejection get to me. But I couldn't. I was sliding into a dark depression. She decides to take a year off to stop auditioning, to just stop doing her show, to just kind of figure out what she's doing. And of course, the minute she decides to really take a break is when she gets a call that SNL is interested in again. So Marcy Klein, the daughter of Calvin Klein, was the head of the talent department and also a producer for SNL. She also explains that before Marcy, SNL had been working with this other like kind of freelance casting agent who just kind of had Lauren's ear and would pass on the people that she thought Lauren should look at. And this woman apparently hated other women. So for a couple of years there, SNL was not doing a good job hiring women because the person who was recommending all of the people to look at hated women. 
this is going to make you mad, but I do think a thing we see consistently is when you like let go of the need to succeed, that's when it all works out. Yeah. When you feel the need, the need for succeed, you actually stop. You in- It impedes. <laughs> <laughs> Josh Peck said that, but it says it like here. And so she gets this call from SNL. And because in her heart, she's like, let go of the desperation. She goes, I'll audition for them, but they have to come out here. I'm not sending another tape. If they want to see me, they can come to my show in L.A. And so her agent gets Marcy Klein to come to L.A. and watch her show. Yeah. And they had stopped putting on the show. So they had like two days to be like, all right, we need to get the theater back, the band back. We need to put the show together. We need to make sure we have all the characters right. And we need to fill the fucking room. And she did. And she fucking crushed it marcy right away goes let's go to dinner and then at dinner she goes you're coming to new york to audition for snl and marcy really mentors her so she's able to reach out to marcy and talk to her about like okay these are the things that i think should work unfortunately this other woman gets in her ear as well this woman who hates women and says definitely don't do that mary Catherine gallagher character that character is not something lauren will like so she does not do Mary Catherine Gallagher, but she is talking to Marcy about the other characters she's going to run. And she like feels very confident in the way she's been able to like ask Marcy, literally, what are the things I should do to do the best job at this audition? So she brings two friends. She brings a bunch of wigs. I mean, it's so sweet to hear, but like her friends are there. Like she's walking around the block because she can't be around the other performers who are also auditioning at Stand Up New York, which is this club on the Upper West Side. And she's like, my one friend keeps going in to check that I'm not missing my spot. She goes up. She says it's like the worst room possible. She's auditioning for Lauren, Marcy, Jim Downey, and Chris Farley. Everyone gets five or six minutes. And the crowd was there to see stand-up. Like, they were just a regular group of people. Who thought they were going to see a regular stand-up comedy show, not a bunch of sketch actors at their most nervous. (laughs) So she goes up last. She had been told not to do Mary Catherine Gallagher. So she's doing everybody else. And she's like, the first character bombs. They don't like it all. She goes, oh, God, I'm tanking. So I gave myself a quick pep talk. Just be a good actress. Do your best job. Just commit as an actress. Don't worry if you don't get laughs. Just commit with your heart and do it. So then she picks her next character. And it's this famous agent she attempted for that she used to always do an impression of for her friend Eugene as a joke between the two of them. And she goes, I decided to do an impression of her using her real name. (laughs) I probably should not have done that. It was an inside thing. I was so green. I didn't really know better. I mean, this woman is 29, 30. We're her age. I would have known better than to use an agent person's real fucking name. But it (laughs) crushes. She goes, halfway through, I looked at Lauren and Marcy and they were dying of laughter. I don't think they could believe it. They knew this agent well and seemed to like my impression. And then she does a couple other characters. After my audition, I felt very peaceful and happy. I felt good knowing that I did the best job I could do. And that's all you can do. I mean, you do your best and then you have to let it go. So she doesn't hear anything for months. And so she's like, well, this sucks. And then all of a sudden, everybody keeps being like, I heard you got SNL. She's like, is this true? <laughs> and can she- I tell you, I feel like this happens every year where like the rumor goes out. Remember that happened to Chris Red? I didn't know that. Chris Red, there was a huge rumor the year before he got SNL. It was like people were writing it up being like Chris Red gets SNL. And he was like, I didn't get SNL. <laughs> and then he did it. And then a year later, he did get it. But. But so she gets a call and she has a meeting with Lauren and she gets on this play and she's so excited because they're flying her first class to New York. So she's sitting in first class next to a serious businessman. And so she goes, I'm going to meet Lauren Michaels. Do you have any tips? <laughs> and luckily, this businessman had like great tips. He goes, ask him opinion questions. Don't ask questions that'll just get a one word answer. Don't talk all about yourself and ask him what he thinks about stuff. And now that I know Lauren, I realized that was the greatest advice ever. He loves giving his opinions about stuff. And then she goes to the meeting. She talks to Lauren and she gets SNL. 
and the, I think something that really comes across is like she's so fucking grateful and she says that to Lauren he goes you know a lot of people here they complain that they're not in all the sketches and she goes if you let me in I will be grateful forever I will never complain about anything and I believe her she like makes yeah. such a point of being like I was grateful even for the audition I was grateful for the flight I couldn't even believe this this was like a feather in my cap but just the idea that I could meet Lauren Michaels that was enough and she says later on that she's like weeks where I wasn't in a sketch it was really great because you could like be there and learn <laughs> so then she's at SNL She's 31 for her first season. So, you know, that really shows you something about the hustle. Mm -hmm. So when she gets there, it's the end of like a real era. She's there and it's Ellen Cleghorn, Chris Elliott, Chris Farley, Janine Garofalo, Norm MacDonald, Michael McKean, Mark McKinney, Tim Meadows, Mike Myers, Kevin Nealon, Adam Sandler, and David Spade, plus Al Franken, Laura Keitlinger, Jay Moore. And there's like a huge hit pace that goes out on them. Everybody's like, this is why SNL sucks now. Yeah, it was a real like SNL's on its last legs, guys. And I feel like every seven years, there's like an SNL is failing right now. Mm -hmm. And then like a new cast comes in and everyone feels revived. So basically that's what happened is at the end of her first season, there was a pretty big change of cast. So there was like this feeling of fresh blood. She said, I got upgraded from featured player to full-time cast member. They brought back Mark McKinney, David Spade, Tim Meadows, Norm MacDonald, and... Yeah, they bring in Colin Quinn, Fred Wolf, Tracy Morgan, and Anna Gasteyer. Gasteyer. I don't know how to say names. That's okay. Anyway, the feeling was fresh blood. Paula Pell was writing, and we know that she's a very notorious SNL writer. And they just all felt very fresh and excited to be just, like, putting out great shit. I guess Will Ferrell joins at some point around this time. Chris Kattan. Sherry. O'Terry. Mm-hmm. Jim Brewer. A lot of like very famous SNL characters are born during this time. The Spartan cheerleaders, the Roxbury guys, dog show, Brian Fuller, ladies, man, delicious dish, NPR host, celebrity Jeopardy, Mary Catherine Gallagher. There's a lot of stuff that is SNL history. If you're a big SNL head, there's a lot in here about the creation of some of these very famous characters. So I definitely think if you grew up on it, you just had to read it. Anyway, she's not getting that much on the air. She's having a pretty hard time with it. And she is really trying to figure out how to get Mary Catherine Gallagher, who is her most successful character personally, onto TV. She's feeling left out because a lot of these people were groundlings before the show and they all knew each other so well they'd all worked together before so she's kind of the odd man out finally she sits down with steve corin and she really explains who this character is and he's like okay here's how we're gonna write this and they end up writing the first mary Catherine gallagher sketch for snl so obviously mary Catherine gallagher is very famous for jumping back and saying superstar and that becomes a whole ass movie that was a line that her good friend in L.A., Debbie Palermo, used to just like say to her as she was walking into her shows. Her friend would be like, there she goes, superstar. And so she just said it on live television as a little nod to her friend who she knew was watching. Like, I feel like everything that she does is just for her friends. She just wants to make her friends laugh in whatever form possible. And so I think that that's really sweet that this tagline that became such a thing was just like an inside joke. So she talks about Mary Kathleen Gallagher and how like that character obviously blew up and how she like committed so hard. They had to bring in an entire team called Team Molly, 
where she needed like a stylist who would help figure out a way to like keep her safe and they brought in a stunt expert to make sure that everything was padded and they'd be like you don't understand molly shannon might sit there and be like i promise not to break down the wall but they're like once mary Catherine gallagher is out there she will destroy everything everything has to be breakaway everything will get broken nothing can be trusted she says that the initial very physical stunts were just kind of by accident because she would just get so into the character like that first diving into a pile of chairs was not a scripted thing it's just like how she is as that character because she would embody her character so fully that she as a person sitting in a room would be like listen it's going to be a very subdued situation and then as soon as she becomes Mary Catherine Gallagher it just goes off the wall yeah she says I liked being roughed up and when I was performing the character I was so in the moment that I couldn't feel anything I would wake up on Sunday morning bruised and cut muscles aching but it felt so good because I had poured my fucking body into what I was doing and I liked how it felt I also think there was a real thing where like only boys were that physical and she came and she's like I'm not afraid of anything I think that ties back into the long-standing theme of like she really isn't afraid if i die out there i die out there i did it for the bit (laughs) mary Catherine wants to be a star and she wants to be seen and she wants her mom to come back from the dead my dad is the grandmother character go to new york city use your singing voice you look like elizabeth taylor she's shy 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 till she gains confidence when she's so bad she gets the sun away i just exaggerated everything i felt it's such a great lesson to really write from your heart from yourself what's true not reacting to boys just being a girl and being yourself and writing from your heart it blew my mind how many people responded to it. It came from within. Like that person is her. And I feel like that that's why that character resonates so much because she's yeah. not making fun of anybody. She's like truly exaggerating her own experience of being like, I'm in so much pain and I have so much shame and guilt. Yeah. And I'm just trying to be seen. I feel like Mary Catherine Gallagher is the part of her brain that she doesn't have that shameful, afraid person that she has like very acutely turned off. Yeah. So because of this character, she becomes famous she becomes known in public people are saying hi to her and she says at this point I got very depressed for a bunch of months I finally let myself be fully deeply sad I couldn't escape it the longing had kept me connected to my mom since she had died I realized I'd been running for years driven to work so hard on this track to make it to achieve and when I finally got there there was still that ache the one person I wanted more than anyone to tell me I was good was my mom she was really the only one I wanted and then I completely changed my whole philosophy I could just enjoy being creative. It didn't matter if I was number one or number 4,000. I didn't have to be the best. It was a relief. So then she writes about the way she pursued characters after that was really like for herself and making herself laugh and feel. And she liked creating these empathetic characters that weren't necessarily always a hit. She says sometimes they were really just for her. And then she says my dad was so proud of me. Every Sunday morning he would call and we would debrief the show. He was always take notes and try to learn the writer's names. It was such a joy for her to be able to like make his dreams come true vicariously through her. Yeah. And she says that most of her characters were in some way loosely based off her dad. His character as a woman. She would like take some of his most prominent personality traits and turn them into like a full blown person. And she says he would come visit her all the time and they loved him. Everyone at SNL, cast members, writers, my good friend who ran the talent office. They would always stop by our table at the after party to say hi. And then the other thing that she talks about at SNL, which I find actually really interesting, is breaking during a sketch. Like when they would all kind of start laughing and when the performers couldn't hold it together. I think that a lot of people would think of that as like a flaw. But she really leans into it and she really likes it. She said, sometimes I could hardly perform in a sketch with Will because I would just start laughing. And I think it's a good thing when someone laughs during a sketch. It shows that you're open, that you're really listening and that your instrument is relaxed. The audience likes it too. It gives them license to laugh and they feel in on something happening live. And I think that that is a really good point. Like what makes Saturday Night Live different from like a pre-recorded sketch show? And it's that you're watching something happen. And so the fact that she was so in tune with the live aspect and in tune with herself and in tune with the characters it just like really shows 
who she is, I think. For her, it's not about perfection. It's about creating a never recreatable moment. And I think that that's quite lovely. In 1998, I was developing a Mary Catherine Gallagher movie, Superstar. At the same time, I got cast in the movie Never Been Kissed. The lead was Drew Barrymore, and I was amazed at how nice she was to the crew and how much she made it a team effort. I love that. Uh, I love Drew, Drew Barrymore. And then she talks about how she wanted this specific director for Superstar, and he was like busy. And Drew sat her down, and she goes, call him and say, what can we do to make this work? Say, you'll do it, whatever it takes. Could you do it at this time, this place, with these people? What are your concerns? What do you need? What do you want? Lay it all out there. I called Bruce and did exactly what Drew suggested. I also stared at a candle and prayed, and he agreed to do it. Later, he told me I did the film because of the armpits. She talks a little bit about heartbreak during this time. She was dating. Nothing was really going her way. And she talks about how she definitely had a block up within herself because of what she'd experienced. Again, the same thing is when she was younger, she would leave before she could get left. She had trouble really opening up to people. And then she talked to someone who gave her, honestly, some of the best dating advice I think we've read. They said, go to everything you're invited to. If you're invited to a party and you don't want to go, just go scout, scout, scout for 20 minutes. Look and see if there's someone cute. Just have a glass of wine. Don't get yourself dehydrated. When you meet a guy, give him your number. If he calls back fast and knows when to transition from just drinks to nice dinner, that's a good sign. And then this is a huge one that I have decided to stick to. And stay single forever, I think. If he can't show up in a reliable way during the fun part when things are easy, he's out. If he gets slippery within three to five dates, he's out. Those are the avoidant attached types. Get out. I feel like the talking stage has fucked this up so hard because we've created this world where it's okay to remain so detached for a while until you really define that things aren't detached. I don't know. I think at a certain age, just like stop. I've decided I'm not doing that anymore. I'm not doing this like games running around thing. It's like I'm going to date someone or I'm not. And I think that this is going to be me single for a while. But through this process, she finds her ultimate husband. She goes on a date with a guy who's much younger than her, but they have fun and he's cute and he's very like direct with each other. Like they Mm -hmm. have fun and she's like, he's respectful, comfortable with him. He's handsome. I mean, she's 36 at this point. So she's like, I was not fucking around. I wanted to have kids. So at 36 years old, if things weren't going well, that was it. Yeah, he was 27. I saw he's nine years younger than her. And she's like, I get that you're younger and that's not something you're looking for soon. Let me know. She also talks about her dad. I mean, of course, the relationship with her dad is so complicated because they're so codependent and she has all this success. And I feel like he's simultaneously so proud and so jealous. And she tells this story about going to Florida with her dad. She had already paid for this vacation. So he comes down with her and they get into this huge fight. And then he runs away and is hiding. And she goes, let him hide. Don't run after him. Calm yourself down. But eventually I got worried and went looking for him. And when I finally found him sitting in the corner of the lobby, I confronted him. I found myself speaking to him about my mom and the accident, expressing myself in a way I never expressed myself before. You talk about yourself, that you lost your wife. Well, we lost our mother. Do you ever think about that? You lost your wife, but Mary and I lost our mom. Does that ever dawn on you? He said, Molly, there's not a day that goes by that I don't think about that accident. Not a day that goes by when I don't think about it and replay it. It broke my heart. He never said it so openly before. We had never talked about it directly because it was so heavy. But now we had broken through and it was a very big moment of understanding and forgiveness and compassion. When you are living in a house where guilt is alive, it leaves a mark. My dad was coping with guilt as an adult and we were coping with it as children. And when you are living in an atmosphere of daily, ever-present guilt, what does that do to a child? It changes their souls. 
this gets back to like her choice of men. And I think she talks about finding her husband and how happy she is. And then she looks back at it and she talks about all the assholes she had ever met. Before I met Fritz, I longed for guys who were unavailable, who couldn't quite do it, who weren't really ready. I grieved my mom through men. It's easy to blame the guy. What an asshole, etc. But I always felt less victimized if I asked myself, what is your part, Molly? What does it say about you that you picked him? And what it says about me is that before Fritz, I picked men who couldn't really do it because I was scared shitless myself. I wasn't ready either. It wasn't just the guy's fault. I was scared of intimacy too. It meant I might get swallowed up if someone who was ready to go. I picked men who were less available for a reason. And when I was ready and more available myself, I chose Fritz. That's beautiful. Finally, it wraps up leaving SNL. So she, a year after meeting Fritz, and I guess she's 37 at this point, she decides that it's time to go. She says, I really wanted to leave when I still loved it. And I wanted to leave with dignity and thoughtfulness because I cared so much about Lauren and the show. So she leaves after the 2000-2001 season and they make this agreement that she's going to leave in February, but that she could come back for the Mother's Day show in May and bring her dad. And that like means a ton to her. And she's like, if I hadn't been allowed to come back for that, I would have just worked through May. Yeah. So for her last show in February, her dad the night before, very drunk. And she's extremely upset. This has happened so many times in her life. When she was younger, she would always get stressed about her dad showing up to like school performances and things like that. Because she's like, you never knew what you were going to get with him. And this was a huge moment for me, my last SNL as an official cast member and he is ruining it with his drinking and he doesn't just show up drunk he shows up drunk with this college boy he met at the bar she's like I don't know what his name is but he was just in my apartment my dad and this like 18 year old kid and then they all go out to dinner together and she's like the dinner is insane because me and my dad are screaming at each other all I could think was oh this poor kid in the middle of all this darkness to this day I do not know who this kid was or what my dad had told him I felt very sorry for him having to see it all he was really nice so then she kicks her dad out her dad has to go stay at a hotel And she is talking to her agent. Her dad and her agent have become very close as well. And she's just replaying the fight and talking about how upset she is. He's talking to her. He's become close to her dad over the years. And he's like, you're being really hard on him. He keeps taking the dad's side. And Molly is like, you're my friend. You're my agent. Why do you keep taking his side? And finally... Stephen kind of just releases that the dad is gay and has been confiding in Stephen because Stephen is also gay. And it's been this thing that he's been working through for not that long. I mean, obviously his whole life, but he hasn't been openly discussing it with anyone for very long at all. And he says that he's ready to tell you he wants to tell you. He just hasn't figured out how. And this is like a absolute clarifying moment for Molly. She thinks back on so many things about her dad and she's like, okay, this explains his like anger and his drinking and his inability to like process certain things because he's just been trying to come to terms with who he is at the same time as trying to deal with all of these other monumental things that have happened to them. She goes to meet him at the hotel. He's outside freezing cold. He's like, there was no heat in the hotel. I'm going home. And she's like, dad, don't go home. Come stay with me. Come like, to the show. Like, I love you. And so that night he sobers up. He knows what he did was wrong. He understood and really apologized. And they go out and they have an incredible night and they celebrate and like they have this great night together and she keeps waiting for him to open up. But she's like, it's up to him. I'm not going to oppress it. It's up to him. So then a couple months later, they come back for the Mother's Day show and her dad is not looking his best. He's very well dressed as always, but he's kind of shivering. He's definitely lost weight. She's not sure what's wrong with him. And he sits her down and she's like, "Okay, he's about to tell me that he's gay. And instead he says, Molly, I have prostate cancer. So this is another really enormous moment that kind of redefines their relationship because now his health is an enormous factor in the situation. And she still doesn't want 
to like pressure him into coming out if he's not ready. So he is able to get some sort of hormone treatment that like keeps the prostate cancer at bay and they kind of just go on living their life. But she's like so grateful that she's leaving SNL because it gives her all this time to spend with him. She's working on the movie Serendipity. They're doing press in LA and she flies her dad out to stay with her at the Four Seasons in Beverly Hills. Yeah. And they have this really lovely weekend and they go out to Ojai and finally at the pool, she just asks him, she says, have you ever considered that you might be gay? And he says, most definitely. And they have like a 72 hour chat about his coming to this realization. And then they have like the most beautiful weekend. And he is such a social fun man that everybody loves. Like when he's great, everybody loves him. And so every night they go out with different friends. And she has all these friends in L.A. that she's known since like childhood and that her dad's so close to and he's been visiting her. And they never really talk about it again. Because she's like, I feel like if he wants to bring it up again, he will. But she's like, it had been breached. It had been. It was out in the open. It just wasn't like often discussed. She said, my dad's neighbor on Wichelle Road told me that a few months after our big talk in Ojai, your dad put up Christmas lights in the window for the first time ever. Boy, did they look beautiful. And then a few months later, he's at a wedding and he breaks his femur and goes to the hospital. So the doctor warns that when you have the cancer that he has, it does progress into your bones. It'll weaken your bones. So he just stood up wrong. He was very concerned that people would think he was drunk and he broke his leg. He goes to the hospital and basically they, when this type of thing happens, when there's an injury, when you have this advanced of cancer, your body is so weak, your immune system is so weak, you go to the hospital, you get an infection and you pass away. So the doctor calls Molly and Mary because he had been like, this is fine. It's just a broken leg. Don't worry anybody but the doctor is like you should come and he doesn't end up leaving the hospital luckily one of the nurses calls them and is like you have to come visit so they're able to both rush to his bedside and be there with him for his last few days and one of the final things he says is the final words okay so the final words he says is as he's dying he took a big inhale of oxygen to give some more advice and we leaned in we could hardly hear him small parts Okay, small parts. Yeah, we repeated trying to make out what he was saying. Then he took another deep inhale of oxygen and said, in movies. So now we repeated, in movies? Yeah. And then he took a final deep breath and he said, like, analyze this. And then he died. I'm not (laughs) kidding. His final advice was, don't ever underestimate a good small part in a movie like analyze this. There are no small parts. That was literally the last thing. I mean, after he died, people reached out. He left an impact on a lot of people. And I think that that is really lovely. I think that they had a very complicated relationship and their last few years together sound really nice. And I'm glad that she like had the conversation she had. Like I'm very happy for her that she was able to broach those topics. She also says like the last conversation they had on the phone before the wedding was 86 minutes long. And she's like, because I wasn't at SNL, I had all this time to have these long conversations. And she goes, I took like the last month's phone bill and kept highlighting all of the minutes that we were able to spend on the phone. And it was so important to her to be able to have this goodbye because she didn't get that with her mom. And she's like, I felt like this was such a dignified way to say goodbye to somebody and she knew it was coming he went on his own terms and that was really important to her that's really lovely and then she talks about her life as a mother so her and fritz got married they've had children and she talks about trying not to be stressed out she's like it's really important to set an example i think because her dad turned on a dime so often 
She was like, the more even-tempered I can be, the better example I'm setting for my children. So she writes about one time their car got towed and she was like, instead of flipping the fuck out. And you guys know, this was so inspiring to me because as (laughs) someone who has notoriously lost my fucking shit over tow trucks before, I was like, to be able to just think on your feet and turn it into a mystery game with your kids to be like, oh, this is a game. Where's our car? Yeah. It's good to be responsible, but there's no point in being so stressed that you can't adjust or bend the rules a little when necessary, particularly when you're dealing with your kids. I'd rather send them to school happy and relaxed than send them to school when they aren't quite ready. That all comes from Jim Shannon. I mean, she ends it with this, which I feel like is like the most inspiring last few paragraphs. I feel so lucky. I got four and a half years with my mom on earth. I'm grateful I got that time with her. It's substantial. And thank God I had that. Losing my mom at such a young age gave me this urgency like, this is it. You're up to bat, baby. Because you never know how much time you're going to have with someone. It gave me a sense of gratitude for the time on earth you do have with people. I don't take any of that for granted. I love being a mom to Stella and Nolan. I truly feel like I hit the jackpot being their mom. And some of the stuff that people complain about as far as parenting goes, I can't relate to. I just think they are alive. They are all alive. Nobody is dead. I think that a lot. There's nothing to be upset about. We're alive. I really think that there is so much from this book that I feel like I say out loud, but I don't put into practice well. And I think that this book was a really great reminder of, you know, that I'm really bad. We've had some conversations this week. I'm really bad about like thinking through my feelings and what I'm trying to get across before I say it. I feel like I'm, you and I both tend to be a little bit reactive. (laughs) And I think this book was like a real beautiful story where I was just like, wow, Ashley, think for a second. The compassion and love for her dad and the gratefulness for life and like the joy. And I mean, just like her career, the grit. It's really one of the better books we've read. And I really recommend it. I have no notes. I mean, even her story, if she had gotten discovered right at NYU, which is when she came up with Mary Catherine and Gallagher, she could have, but she wasn't. She like put in her time and she kept getting rejected. And she just has chapter after chapter of all the rejections. It's just such an inspiring story from top to bottom as like a person, as a creative person. Yeah, I think it's really lovely. It's a beautiful ode to how difficult life can be and how you it's I mean, the Drew Barrymore thing. You can pick happiness. Mm -hmm. And just like everybody does have like a fucked up story. Yeah, it's a really beautiful book and I hope you guys enjoy it this week on the Patreon. We have a lot of fun stuff coming for you guys. (laughs) Don't forget the moment has tickets and Late Show Chicago's going fast. So. We'll see you guys soon. I love you so much. Love you. Oh, and you know who I love the most. (laughs) This week, thank you to our five-star reviewers. Thank you so much to Zwag101. I would take a Zwag intro class from you. Thank you, Miss Daxon. If you hosted Armchair Expert, I would listen. Thank you, Kate Late. I don't even care if you're on time. Stay late. I'll keep appreciating you. Thank you, Sandy Likes Sandy Beaches. You and me both, old Sando. Thank you, Kenda48. You are simply great. Thank you, Jack B. Wink. Winking right back at ya. Thank you, Emily Jean22. My God, you know I fucking love jeans. Thank you, D-R-I-L-R-R. I would take the L-R-R to visit you. Thank you, Rod 20 I appreciate you times 20. Thank you, Katie Winslow, 11. Oh my God, my favorite number is 11. A perfect number. Wait, what was that? Um, My response to you is that Love Island quote about the number 11. Thank you, Spicy Ginger, 326. Oh my God, I appreciate you for adding so much flavor. Thank you, LLC, 3.23. Hell yeah, keep doing business. Thank you, Meg, Yah, Yah back at ya. 
Thank you, M's Fab. You are freaking fab. Thank you, Ghost Gang 101. I appreciate you from the great beyond. Thank you, Kristen Kelly from Justin to Kelly. I adore you. Thank you, F. Salinger 27. I would have read more of the reading in English class if you wrote it. Thank you, Kiara Christine. I hope that you find a tiara that rhymes with your name. Thank you, Meg Rose O. You smell sweet as a rose. Thank you, Sarah SH. H stands for happy you wrote this review. Thank you, Grill Interrupted. How dare anyone interrupt your grilling? I will fight them for you. Thank you, Olivia Elise. You give me a fresh lease on life. Thank you, Jackie. This is a beautiful review, and I'm sure you're great at a lot of things. A real Jackie of all trades. Thank you, Grace Elizabeth Sophia. Three beautiful names for a beautiful person. Thank you, Catherine Murphy 13. Luck of the Irish and lucky number 13. That's all for this week. Thank you guys so much. I adore you endlessly.